This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 11, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. As you can see from the title of this lecture, we're going to be covering quite a bit of material. We're going to be working through three different books in, this, in the times uh, allotted to just one lecture. So we must work very quickly. These are short books, but we still must work very quickly through these materials. Let's start off by looking at the book of Nahum first, distinguishing between the man and the book. Figure 11.1 gives us a picture of the man, Nahum, when he ministered and where he ministered. The question of where he ministered is settled pretty much by figure one, uh, by verse 1-1, one, one, um, where he speaks of Nahum as an Elkoshite, and probably this is Beit Yebrin of Judah. You can't be particularly um, certain of this, but there's a likelihood that this is the case, and if that is the case, and we're talking about a man of Judah probably ministering in Judah. But the question of when Nahum ministered has to be settled in other ways. We can, there are certain events in this book that are described as something has happened in the past, and then some events that are described as future and present events. And so these help us limit the possibilities. Let's start on the left-hand side of the chart of 11.1, talking about some of the things that have gone on in the past. Well, chapter 2, verse 2, speaks of the harsh Assyrian dominion of Judah as something that has already taken place. Verse 2, 2 says, The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, uh, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. So there has been a harsh Assyrian um, uh, attack against the um, Judahites, and this, of course, we know began in 701, around 701 of the Sennacherib invasion when the Assyrians subjected Judah to harsh treatment. We know also that this book speaks of the fall of Thebes to Assyria, chapter 3, verse 8. Are you better than Thebes, situated on the, situated on the Nile? This is referring to the idea that the Assyrians had taken Thebes, and so the notion here is that the condemnation of Nineveh by this book is being contrasted with the condemn or compared to the condemnation of Thebes. And uh, this event took place somewhere around 663. So we know that we're narrowing the possibilities for when Nahum could have ministered by that event as well. Now, working from the right-hand side back, from chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we know that this book, the, the oracles of this book, look forward to the fall of Nineveh. It anticipates the fall of Nineveh. So, so Nahum was talking about a future event when he talked about the fall of Nineveh, and Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. Uh, under, to the Babylonians. And then also, chapter 1, verse 12, suggests that the Assyrian army was still strong and that the Assyrian nation was still strong um, during the time of Nahum's ministry. This is what the Lord says, although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. And so the idea is that the, um, we can, that limits the, the possibilities for the dating as well to perhaps the days of Ashurbanipal as the latest possibility because in those days, the days of Ashurbanipal, around 627, Assyria's power begins to decline. So this gives us some limitations then. Somewhere probably between 660 and 620 is when Nahum ministered. 
We do notice something, however, that in the book there is no denunciation of sin in Judah. This, should be, this is a striking contrast to Hosea, Amos, and Joel. Nahum does not condemn Judah for present sins in her uh, culture, in her life. And this raises then the very likely possibility of this being a time between 660 and 627 that Judah had reformed or Judah had been doing the right thing for a period of time. And this suggests then or raises the possibilities that Nahum may have actually ministered during the reforms of Manasseh and we can read about his reforms. And so we're talking about a range of somewhere between 650 and 628 for the ministry of Nahum. What is Nahum the man's message? Well, figure 11.2 gives us an idea. The problem is that Assyria is strong, but we also know at this time of his ministry that reforms were taking place or that good things were working in the life of Judah. And I think that basically Nahum was announcing the idea that Assyria will be destroyed and that Judah, despite the troubles that she has received already and the judgment that's come against her, that Judah will be restored one day to her full glory and splendor. Now that was Nahum the man. Now we need to ask the question about Nahum the book. When was this book written? Well, we know that the book had to be written, figure 11.3, after 628 or so. That is, it had to be written after Nahum announced his own ministry or had his ministry. So sometime after 628 for sure. The only clue we have is the fact that chapter 1, verse 1 does not give us any date an oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. And I want to suggest to you that this probably means that the book was written sometime near the ministry of uh, Nahum because the writer or the final compiler of this book did not feel it necessary to give the reigns of the kings or give a date for Nahum's ministry. In all likelihood, this suggests that um, the people who would be receiving this book knew about Nahum, or at least he was close enough temporally that it was not something that they had to have identified for them. But this then raises the question of when we might think in terms of interpreting this book or setting this book in its final composition. And let me just suggest to you that the theme of Nineveh and its destruction may give us a point of reference for thinking about the compilation of this book. On the one hand, we can think of this book as having been composed before the fall of Nineveh. On the other hand, we can think of it as being composed after the fall of Nineveh. So what I'm suggesting is sometime after 628, but let's look at the book as if it were written before the fall in 612 or right after the fall or near the fall after 612, the fall of Nineveh. If the book was written before the fall of Nineveh, then this book is announcing that Nineveh's judgment is coming and that Judah's blessing is going to come um, in some fashion in conjunction with that fall of Nineveh or certainly following it in some manner. But if this book is written after 612 when Nineveh had fallen, then um, then the announcement is, or this book, not Nahum's ministry itself, but the book, would be looking retrospectively and saying that, okay, the fall of Nineveh has taken place, 612. What good then are the rest of the oracles of Nahum? Well, they promise blessing for Judah, and Judahites can take assurance that the blessings are going to come because the judgment oracles against Nineveh had come. So the basic... Uh, focus of our attention on the book of Nahum is to ask the question, if it was written before 612, um, what did it mean? If it was written 
This brings us then to the literary structure of the book. And if you look at figure 11.4, you can see that the, um, the arrangement of the book is not difficult to discern. Basically, it divides into three major sections. And if you look at the various outlines that I have here on the page of Octomeyer, Robertson, and Baker, you can see that their, their outlines are very similar to my own. But basically, the three sections, apart from the title, chapter 1, verse 1, the first section, chapter 1, 2 through 11, says that God is coming to punish Nineveh. These are announcements of judgment against Nineveh. Then the middle section is that Nineveh will be crushed and that Judah will be blessed. So you see that the crushing of Nineveh is also a blessing for Judah. And then finally, the book closes with woes toward Nineveh, um, lamenting and uh, talking about how Nineveh's destruction will be so horrific. What then is the original meaning of this book? How, how did it work for the ancient Israelites as they read this book? Figure 11.6. The purpose of the book can be summarized something like this, that the Judahites should acknowledge God's destruction of Nineveh as something good, as something appropriate, and then they should also acknowledge the blessing that's coming for Judah. And if the book was written before 6.12, the first section of the book tells them to take hope in their future, in the, defeat, in the future defeat of Nineveh, and the second section would be saying to the pre-612 audience that they go to Nineveh would tell them to take hope that Nineveh's destruction is absolutely certain to the point that woes are actually being offered on her behalf. But then if the events of 612 had already taken place by the time this book was written, then Judahites receiving this book should rejoice by reflecting on Nineveh's defeat they should rejoice in the judgment that has come. The second part would tell them this, but also continue in their own positive hope. And then the final portion of this book, chapter 3, would tell them that they should recognize that God has fulfilled his word of destruction against Nineveh. Well, how does this material play out? How does this outline and this, these basic themes, how do they play out in these materials? Well, Nineveh is a horrific thing for Judahites. You know the book of Jonah and how difficult it was for Jonah to come to the point that he was willing to minister to Nineveh. He did not like the fact that Nineveh was spared the judge from judgment in his own day. But now we come to the idea that God is going to punish Nineveh, and these words come through the prophet Nahum. His book begins with a hymn, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and this is a praise of God in judgment. Now, you need to realize that the word Nineveh, as we find it in the NIV Bible in verse, chapter 1, verse 8, and in several other places, verse 11, um, and then the word Judah, verse 12, and then Nineveh again in verse 14, that these distinctions between Nineveh and Judah are being added by the editors of the NIV Bible, the little brackets that they put at the foot of these uh, words, O Nineveh, O Judah, are to help us understand that the prophet's either talking to Judah or to Nineveh. But you must remember as you read through this that these are editorial decisions on the behalf of or by the um, editors of the NIV Bible. And sometimes there are possibilities for interpreting these oracles differently. In other words, that some of the oracles that they associate with Nineveh may actually be for Judah and vice versa. 
But the idea here is pretty clear in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, that God is one who destroys his opponents. The Lord is jealous and an avenging God, verse 2. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. You see that this is a praise of God for his great power in judging his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. And so you see that the praise of God opens this book, but it's not praise for his, his as it were, grace and his mercy, but praise for his a power to judge enemies. This hymn. this hymn of praise leads us to the oracle of judgment in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We should realize at the beginning of verse 9, whatever they plot against the Lord in the NIV, in the Hebrew it's actually in the second person, as the footnote suggests, and what do you foes plot against the Lord? And so this is an address probably to Nineveh directly. Whatever Nineveh plots against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. Um, and so the the notion here is that there is this sentencing that's going to take place, and it's a sentencing against Nineveh, but why? What's the accusation? What causes it to this sentencing to come? From you, O Nineveh, verse 11, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. And so Nineveh is accused of being one that's opposed to the Lord, and the Lord, the sentence is that the Lord will destroy and frustrate the plans of the Ninevites against Judah. This then moves us to the second major section of the book. We have a hymn of praise, oracle of judgment in the first section. Now the second section where there's sort of a balance, a balance between the evil that's going to come upon Nineveh and the salvation that's going to come to Judah. And you can see that in our figure here, um, figure 11.7, as the alternation goes back and forth between Nineveh, Judah, Nineveh, and Judah, um, and that this Alteration also involves judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. We start off first with an oracle of judgment and salvation in verses 12 through 15. So let's just take a look at a sample of this. Chapter 1, verse 12a. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Okay, now there is a word against Nineveh, a word of judgment. But there's salvation immediately following, a word of salvation, but this time for Judah. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your, tear your shackles away. And so this is the kind of thing that goes on in this middle section, very much a balanced concern for the judgment against Nineveh and the uh, freedom and salvation of Judah. And you can find the same thing going on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, where you have a call to war. Verse 1, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh, judgment for Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourself, marshal all your strength. So there's the word of judgment against Nineveh, now salvation for Judah. Verse 2, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and, they have, and have ruined their vines. And so you see the alternation once again between judgment for Nineveh and salvation for Judah. For the, so this middle section of the book, really forms sort of a hinge for the book in the sense that you have a balance between the negative and positive. In the front, you have the negative against Nineveh, the hymn of praise for God's judgment and the oracle of judgment, and then the middle section dealing with the oracles of judgment and salvation and the call to war. But then this brings us to the last section of the book of Nahum, and that is the woes against Nineveh. The Oracle of Woe, chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of blood. There you have the accusation, the woe as well as the accusation, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And indeed, 
the Assyrian kingdom was ruthless in the way that it treated its, um, its victims of war. Uh, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of wanton lust of a harlot, alluring and mistri the mistress of sorceries who enslaved the nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? The kinds of things that are going to take place against this Nineveh. I am against you, declares the Lord, verse 5. Um, I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms of your sh and the kingdoms your shame. Verse six is rather uh, remarkable. I will pelt you with filth. And um, what he's talking about is he's going to throw um, feces at them. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt, and I will make you a spectacle. And all who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? And so the sentencing is very harsh against Nineveh for its um, sins and its rebellion against God, but also its mistreatment of the people of God. And so we can see why it is that Judahites, hearing all these things, would find themselves reveling in the joy of hearing that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And then people reading this book, if they read it before the destruction of Nineveh, would find hope that indeed Nineveh will be destroyed and that Judah will find freedom in that. But then people who read this after the destruction of Nineveh will hear that the words of Nahum really did come true, that Nineveh was destroyed by the Babylonians in 612. And that so the readers reading after 612 can take joy in the fact that Nahum's words of judgment against Nineveh did come about. And therefore, they can take heart that the positive words for Judah will come about as well. This brings us then to the book of Habakkuk, Roman numeral 2, letter A, the man and the book. Let's think first about the man Habakkuk. Uh, where did he minister? Who was he? When did he minister? Uh, chapter 1, verse 6, gives us a hint as to who or where Habakkuk ministered. Uh, we read in chapter 1, verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who will sweep across the whole earth. Um, apparently, we have to associate Habakkuk not with the Assyrian problem, but with the Babylonian problem. And this, of course, associates him not so much with northern Israel, but with southern Judah. The question then is, when did he minister? And we know from chapter 1, verse 6, that the Babylonians were a formidable foe during his ministry. So we're talking about sometime after the fall of Nineveh, 612, when the Babylonian kingdom was on the rise. We know also from chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that there is oppression within the land, oppression within um, is Judah itself, that is, Judahites oppressing each other. And we know also that the Babylonian invasion is something that Habakkuk foretold, chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 15. So the destruction of 597 and the like, those invasions by the Babylonians had not yet taken place during his ministry. It also came after the fall of Nineveh and the rise of the Babylonian threat, and it was during a time of oppression. And this relates very nicely to the reign of Jehoiakim around 608 to 597. Um, we can't be terribly certain of this, but in all likelihood we are dealing with that kind of range during the realm of Jehoiakim between the fall of Nineveh and the actual invasion of the Babylonians. That would be when Habakkuk himself actually had his ministry. Figure 1110 suggests 
we certainly want to say that this book was written after the oracles of Habakkuk were given, and that's what I mean when I say after around 597, if that is the limit on when we're going to put his ministry. Um, but the big question that we have to ask is, did, did the book come to existence as it is now during the days when the Babylonians were attacking um, Judah? You know, there were several deportations and several major invasions between the days of 597 and 586, 586 being the final demise of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem. And during that time, the Babylonians did afflict the Judahites in a number of different ways. It's possible that that is the time when the book was written, as during that period when the Babylonians were on the rise and actually afflicting the Judahites. It's also possible, of course, that this book came to its final composition after the fall of Jerusalem or in other words, after 597 to 586. I am personally convinced that this book focuses uh, enough on the question of trouble, the troubles that the Babylonians were causing and their continuing existence and the troubles for the people of Judah in such a way that fits better with the period of time when the question of exactly how far the Babylonians were going to go and how bad things were going to get still remained an open question. But it's difficult to settle on this issue, and although I think the earlier date is more likely, I had that sense of it as I read the book. But sometime around the, the Babylonian invasions of Judah is the time when we must set the writing of this book, um, either right before it or during it and right after it would probably be the best way to deal with this. The question then has to do, that we have to ask at this point then, is the literary structure of the book. And if you take a look at figure 11.9, I have given the outline of several different uh, commentators. My own outline follows closely some of the others, as you see. Um, you have the title, of course, chapter 1, verse 1. And then you have, first, a lament by Habakkuk and a response by Yahweh concerning Judah and the evils of Judah. Then you have a lament by Habakkuk and a response by Yahweh concerning the Babylonians and the evils of the Babylonians that they have inflicted on Judah. And then the book closes with Habakkuk offering a prayer and a praise and a determining to submit himself to God despite the evils that the Babylonians have brought upon the nation. And so these would be the three main sections of the book. And as we look at figure 1111, we see the back and forth that goes on in this book, the back and forth between Habakkuk and God. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk laments or complains about evil in Judah. He talks about the injustice and the violations of the Torah. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails, verse 4. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And what Habakkuk is doing here is wondering how long, verse 2, how long he must call for help and for God to do something about the evil that the Judahites are inflicting on each other. And God's response is, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, that he will punish Judah, and he, but he will punish Judah through the Babylonians, chapter 1, verse 6. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. Take a look at verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. God's saying, I'm going to do something with the nations, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And what is that thing that's so unbelievable? It is that God will use the ruthless people, the Babylonians, to actually punish the wickedness of Judah. 
in effect, God is saying, I know that the Babylonians are even more wicked than you are, but I'm going to use them to punish you, Judahites, because you are my people. As a result of this punishment that's come upon the people, um, Habakkuk begins to lament about the evils of the Babylonians. 1.12, O Lord, are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? This is a fascinating passage where um, Habakkuk says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil and he cannot tolerate wrong, but then he goes right ahead and says in the very second half of that book that God is tolerating wrong. He is tolerating the wicked. And he's asking, why is he doing this? Because the wicked, the Babylonians, are even more wicked than the um, Judahites that God is punishing. And um, God's response is in chapter 2, verse 2 through 20. And the Lord replies this way, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. The end here is not talking about the second coming of Christ. It's talking about the end of this period of suffering for Judah. Though it will linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he has puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. Talking now about the Babylonians. And what, what's going on here in this passage is that God is replying to Habakkuk and saying to Habakkuk, um, the Babylonians are going to be destroyed and that the Judahites need to hold on and to wait that even though there's going to be troubles, um, there are going to be times, there's going to be a time in the future when destruction is going to come. Look at verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you, talking to the Babylonians. And so basically, Habakkuk is saying in this, in this passage, uh, in his laments and then God's response, this book is saying that the Judahites should regret their sins. There's no question about that, that that's the, that's the focus of the first portion. They were punished because of their sins. But they should also take heart from God's response that the Babylonians will not rule over them forever, but that he will destroy the Babylonians because of their idolatry and because of their wickedness and because they have hurt the Judahites so much. As figure 10:12 suggests, these laments and assurances are a prelude to the end of the book, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, where Habakkuk prays, praises God and affirms his faith in a song. As we take a look at figure 11:13, we can see the outline here of chapter 3. This is a prayer, this is a, a song, as it says in chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And so this whole chapter is a prayer or a song to the Lord. The petition comes in chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And so um, Habakkuk is asking God to act on the behalf of Judah and to bring about an act of mighty power against her enemies on, her, on the behalf of God's people. Then following this petition comes a second, uh, the second section of this prayer 
the praise of God, first praising God for his magnificent theophany, that is his appearance in the sky, his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth, verse 4, his splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden, plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. These are typical biblical uh, descriptions of the theophany of judgment where God appears in judgment. And then verses 8 through 15, that God will come in warfare. Um, and will strike down and use his instruments of war to destroy his enemies. This is imagery that comes from the Exodus. It comes from uh, Sinai on the mountain, and it also comes from conquest imagery. And you can take a look at um, those parts of the Bible and find reflections of those parts of the Bible in this material of Habakkuk's prayer. As a result of this, something happens to Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And so you find here that he notices and he realizes that this is a horrific thing that's happening, that God is the kind of God who comes and crushes people. He's the kind of God who destroys the wicked, and this causes fear in Habakkuk's heart because he realizes that Judah herself is going to have to suffer because of her own sins. But then something changes in here. It's an expression of faith that starts taking place in the second half of verse 16. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And so we find that the heart of Habakkuk is turned to faith and to submission rather than to um, lament and, and rebellion against God, even though things are going to be hard for the people of God. The first part of verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to go on the, height, on to, on the heights. And so the idea here is that Habakkuk has worked through in this prayer, he's worked through the pain of realizing that judgment is going to come upon the people of God and that the trouble that the Babylonians are inflicting on the Judahites is trouble that comes from the hand of God. And yet at the same time, he submits to this punishment, he submits to this discipline and says that even though nothing good comes for the people of God, he will submit and wait on God to bring about judgment against the nation that he promised to judge, namely the Babylonians. And the message of this section of the book it would be pretty straightforward, and that is that the Judahites, in reading about Habakkuk's prayer, should make this prayer their own, that they should take heart in their circumstances by reading his prayer and endorsing the concepts there that God is a great God and that he does punish severely, but that in faith they can trust him to punish their own enemies in the future and that they should wait on him much as Habakkuk himself is waiting in faith and submission. Turning then to figure 1114, we can find a summary of the purpose and the meaning, original meaning of the book of Habakkuk. The basic purpose is that the Judahites should learn how to react to Babylonian troubles through Habakkuk's experiences. If this book was written before or during the period of 597 to 586, during the Babylonian crisis, then this book would indeed warn them of the invasions that are coming and would tell them that evil is coming their way them and that they can remain faithful through that time. If, there, if this book was finally composed after the great events of 586, the final defeat of Jerusalem, then 
it tells the Judahites to be patient and to honor God in their defeat and to hold on in the hope that one day he will rescue them from the power of the Babylonians. This brings us then to the final book of this lecture, the book of Zephaniah. The ministry of Zephaniah is identified rather clearly in the opening verse of this book. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we know, for example, that the ministry of Zephaniah was in the south because his ministry, is con his words are concerned primarily with Jerusalem. And then we know also that it occurred during the reign of King Josiah from about 640 to 609. The indication of chapter 1, verses 4 through 15, is that the prophecies of Zephaniah took place before the reforms of Josiah. He goes through and lists off the evils that are going on in the land of Judah, and these things would have been dealt with, at least for the most part, by Josiah's reforms late in his reign. And so we have the, um, the idea then that, this is, that Zephaniah probably ministered during the earlier reign of Josiah, sometime in the... Uh, mid-7th century, or the last quarter of the 7th century. This raises the question about the final composition of the book. When was this book inscripturated? Well, we would think that the book would probably be inscripturated after or near the end of Josiah's reign. Um, the ex we know that it was close to the ministry of Zephaniah, or we think it might be, because there's no uh, dating necessary beyond simply mentioning that he was during the days of Josiah. But we move on, though, to the idea of the possibility that this could have been written, this book, before the Babylonian threat actually became a reality in 597 and following, or maybe even after the final crushing of Jerusalem. And my opinion is that the balanced word on Judah in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, the fact that it mentions the need for repentance and that the book talks about this and talks about the balance between good and evil in Judah, suggests that perhaps this is actually before the final curse of the Babylonians had taken place. So I think that basically what we're saying here is that the book was written near or around the time of the Babylonian crisis, but uh, recording the words of Zephaniah as he spoke them during Josiah's reign. What's the basic outline of this book? First, the title, chapter 1, verse 1, and then you have a section on judgment against the nations, especially against Judah, in chapters 1, 2 through 2, 3. And then you find this middle section of this book, chapter 2, 4 through 15, is judgment against foreign nations. Now, we'll see the list of those foreign nations in just a moment. And then finally, judgment and salvation for Judah is mentioned in the third chapter. And the, the salvation elements of, the sec of that third chapter are positive um, restoration promises, but there's also judgment for Judah as well. So as we take a look at these materials, we'll see that kind of balance there at the end of the book. Let's start off first talking about the first section, the oracles of judgments against Judah and the nations. We can see in figure 1118 an outline of this material in ch beginning in chapter 1 and verse 2. Verse 2 of the first chapter offers us a sentence. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is an oracle of judgment, and it basically says that the whole earth is going to be judged by God. 
the sentence is that all nations of the earth will be judged. And then you have a second oracle of judgment, verses 7 through 13, where the sentencing is that the day of the Lord is near and punishment is coming to Jerusalem. As we look at verses 7 through 13, especially verse 7, be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. And you remember we've talked about this theme of the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord, being the day in which he intervenes into history and destroys all his enemies in one foul swoop. But we also notice that this day of the Lord is not simply against other nations, but the focus of this material is that it comes against the temple of Jerusalem itself, that is against the city and the temple of Jerusalem itself as you read through this section. There's a, a third oracle of judgment, verses 14 through 18, where the day of the Lord will be a terrible worldwide judgment. And you can take a look at that, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, of distress and anguish, of trouble and ruin, darkness, gloom, clouds, a day of trumpet and battle cry. I will bring disaster on the people, and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. And so you find that the, if you take a look then at verse 18, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. And so the idea here is that something of dramatic proportions is going to happen, something that's going to cover the then known world. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you have a call to repentance at the end of all of this. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, speaking to Judah, before the appointed time arrives, and that day sweeps on like chaff before the fierce anger of the Lord comes on you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes on you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Here we find the prophet offering hope to those um, within Judah who are faithful and who are righteous. If they will seek humility, seek righteousness, then perhaps they will be sheltered from at least some dimensions of the wrath that's soon to come. Well, what is this wrath that's soon to come? We can't be precise as to exactly what it is, but the day of the Lord being God's intervention into history, probably, and this thing being then a worldwide judgment, probably makes reference to the Babylonian crisis. The day of the Lord, look at figure 1119, the day of the Lord, Zephaniah is talking about this, and what he's talking about is the fact that there's going to be this worldwide judgment coming to the nations all around Israel and Judah because of, their, um, because of the wickedness of the earth, and the instrument of that judgment is going to be the Babylonians. But within that is going to be a very special judgment for the nation of Judah. And in many respects, this, this passage reminds us of the kind of language that's used and the ideas that were used in the first, chapter of, first two chapters of the book of Amos. And that is that Judah is going to be counted among the other nations in the judgments that's to come. And what would have been Zephaniah's message? That the Judahites should repent in humility because God has planned a judgment of which they are a part. And that judgment being primarily or notably the Babylonian crisis as it was threatened even in Josiah's day. This brings us then to the middle section of this book, the oracles of judgment against the nations. And figure 1120 shows us that basically Zephaniah addresses Philistia, Moab and Ammon, Cush and Assyria. These nations are going to be destroyed, he says. 
Uh, they're going to be possessed even by Judah. This is one thing that comes through the first two um, oracles there, as you see in the figure, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and chapter nine, 2, verse 9b, that not only will the nations be destroyed, but they will one day be possessed by Judah. Cush and Assyria will also be destroyed. And which nation is it that did all of this? Well, of course, it was the Babylonians who did this, but the Babylonian destruction is not the end of the story. As chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 and 9 tell us, the ultimate goal of the destruction of these nations is the victory of Judah over these nations. And so this middle section of the book, Zephaniah's message is that the day of the Lord is coming, the nations around Judah will be judged, and eventually Judah will possess these lands. And this, of course, should remind us of Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and following, where we're told that Israel, the Sukkot David, the tent of David, will rise up and that Israel will conquer the nations who are called by the name of Yahweh, or they will be conquered by Yahweh's army. And this, again, is a restoration theme that comes in the middle of these judgments oracles against all of the nations. This brings us then to the third major section of the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, where there is both the theme of judgment and the theme of salvation. First we have in chapter 3 an oracle of woe. And what is going to be, what is, why this oracle of woe? Well, let's take a look at it. What are the accusations in chapter 3? Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are, are evening wolves who leave nothing for mourning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses his justice, and every new day he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous no notion that the evil within the city in all classes and especially among the leadership is terrible and so verse 8 says the sentence therefore wait for me declares the Lord for the day I will stand up to testify I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms to pour out my wrath on them all my fierce anger the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger and this, of course, again, is talking about the Babylonian aggression where Judah will be judged along with the nations. Sometimes we don't realize what power the Babylonians exerted over the Middle East. They, their kingdom was extensive, and they conquered a great many foes. And these nations that are mentioned in the middle section, Philistia, Assyria, those nations, Ammon, Moab, these are nations that were conquered by the Babylonians even as they uh, moved toward Judah. And the defeat of the Judahites was just one part of a much bigger historical phenomenon of the rise and the conquering of the Babylonians. And so this day of the Lord, this worldwide sweeping army, is the uh, army of the Babylonians. But following this comes a lovely oracle of salvation, chapter 3, verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, and all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day you will not be put ashamed for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. And so you see that there is a purification and a gathering of the people of God back from the places of exile, back away from the uh, troubled spots. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. 
And so you have this wonderful picture then of, yes, worldwide destruction is coming and Judah is a part of that worldwide destruction, but one day God will redeem Judah and bring her back through the remnant, that is through a small group that will be pure and will be righteous and they will be brought back to the land in much joy. And so what is um, the original meaning of this? Figure 1123. On the one hand, Judah will be judged with the other nations through the Babylonian aggression, but the Judahites should be glad because of the promise of a great restoration to follow. So we find then, figure 1124, that the main idea in this book is that the Judahites should look soberly at the impending doom of the Babylonian aggression, but take heart in the restoration promises. We can take a look now at figure 25, 26, and 27. And basically these are outlines, very quick outlines, of places where Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. So we've seen in our quick survey here the three books, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, all of which had very specific messages for the people of God listening in their day, but also these messages relate to us today by analogy for the judgments that were to come, but also by this principle of historical contingency, since we now inherit the restoration promises that these prophets offered. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.